Mark chapter 6. It seems like we've been in Mark chapter 6 for a long time, doesn't it? I feel like I've said that many, many times. Turn to Mark chapter 6. Well, not many more will we be in here. Mark chapter 6, and we're going to read starting with verse 7. Read down through verse 13, and then we're going to skip the story of John the Baptist's death and jump down to verse number 30. So John chapter 6, or Mark chapter 6, verse 7 is where we'll start. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, In whatsoever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jump down to verse number 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Father God, thank you for your word. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit now and help me to teach it to the very best of my ability and beyond. I pray that I would be clear and accurate and practical. And I pray most of all, Lord, that you would just speak uh, through this and into the hearts of these your people. May we all be changed by your word and encouraged by it and uh, taught by it, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to talk to you today about the rhythm of the Christian life. There is a rhythm to our everyday lives, isn't there? Every day begins with a morning and an afternoon and an evening. There is a rhythm. We eat breakfast and lunch and dinner. And we start over again. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, some more than that. Every morning we wake up, take a shower, brush our teeth, shave, whatever it is we do. We have a rhythm to our everyday lives. And I would suggest that there ought to be a rhythm to our spiritual lives as well. And I think we see it illustrated here in this text. Now, there are two significant events that were described in the two different halves of Scripture that I read to you today. First of all, we see the apostles going and returning from their first mission. Jesus had sent them out and... uh, And they had now returned and given a report to him. That's the first thing we see. And the second thing we see is that Jesus suggested to them that they come apart and rest as a result of that. And so I want to kind of break those down and examine those two areas of significance this morning. Think about that first mission, first of all. The apostles returning from their first mission. Now, when the last time that, uh, that we were in Mark, which is a couple weeks ago now, um, we skipped verses 7 through 13 and concentrated on the story of the beheading, the martyrdom of John the Baptist. And we skipped that because that passage, verses 7 through 13, really fits with the passage in 30 through 34. 
They went on their mission. They returned. The story of John the Baptist is kind of a parenthesis in the middle there. So we want to return to that skipped section now just for a few moments and think about what happened there. Jesus had called the 12 disciples together. He had given them some instructions, and then he had sent them out to preach the gospel. And just as with everything Jesus did, every little detail here is interesting. And every little detail is meaningful and significant. Consider, for example, the fact that he had divided them into groups of two. Two by two, he sent them out. Literally in the Greek, duo, duo. And this is important. And it was important for a couple of reasons. It was important because in their day, the testimony of two or three witnesses was required to lend any level of credibility. Uh, it was required by the culture and by the law. Deuteronomy chapter 17, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Deuteronomy 19, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Numbers chapter 35, whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses, plural, but one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. So in their culture, one person testifying to a thing was suspect. It was not as credible or credible at all. But two men testifying to the same thing lent credibility. And so he sent them out two by two, duo, duo, so that they would be credible in their witness. Two by two was also important because it provided for some good things for the ones who were going out, for those two who were together. It provided for mutual encouragement and edification. The two would be together. They would be praying together, working together. They would be going through the same joys and trials of the task together. That's what Ecclesiastes, or the author of Ecclesiastes, was saying when he said two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. J.C. Rowell was commenting on that verse from Ecclesiastes, and he said this. He said, two men together will do more work than two men singly. They will help one another in judgment and commit fewer mistakes. They will aid one another in difficulties and less often fail to succeed. They will stir one another up when tempted to idleness and less often relapse into indolence and indifference. They will comfort one another in times of trial and be less often cast down. Pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Ecclesiastes 4.10. Duo, duo, two by two. We used to use that model when we were doing our reaching Randolph one door at a time. I was just reminded this morning of uh, someone who is here today as a result of that. And it still works today. It'll always work. It's the method that the Lord Jesus used here. It's the model that's used by, by the Mormons. The Mormons who, even though they're uh, preaching a completely false gospel, succeed in spreading it to an ever-increasing group of people uh, to a large extent because they're following this model. Duo, duo, two by two. Another part of Jesus' instructions to the disciples as he sent them out was uh, concerning some restrictions. Notice there were some interesting restrictions, restrictions on provisions, restrictions on supplies that they were uh, not supposed to take on their mission. And I think Jesus wanted to ensure that they learned their provision was from God, not from men. They need not rely on men. One man said the overlying reason was so they would be dependent upon Christ for strength. The minimum of provisions was meant to call out the maximum of faith. I like that. The minimum of provisions was meant to call out the maximum of faith. They weren't to worry about their comfort. That's what verse 10 tells us. There was to be no switching accommodations to something a little plushier if it came along. Wherever they were, they were to stay. They were not on a vacation. They were on a mission. 
They were to shake off the dust of their feet as a testimony against those who rejected their message. Verse number 11, they were to be as clear as they could be in their preaching, even when it meant explaining to people that the judgment of God awaited if they did not listen. Notice here that the sin of Sodom, which is so often held up as the pinnacle of sinfulness to us, uh, pales in comparison to the sin of hearing the gospel and rejecting it. And so they were to be very clear and very practical and pronounce even judgment if necessary. So Christ, he had instructed them, he had equipped them, he had sent them out on this mission. And now we get down to verse number 30 and we see them returning from that mission and uh, giving a report. Interestingly, upon their return, you'll notice Mark uses the word apostles. He hadn't used that word up to this point. There's a pretty obvious reason for that. The word apostles, he'd been, he'd been calling them disciples up to this point, which was true. A disciple is a learner. Uh, an apostle is a sent one. And so what happened in verse number 7? Jesus sent them out. Now they've come back. And now he is referring to them as apostles. They reported in verse number 30 what they had done and what they had taught. Now, every time I've ever read that in the past, I always look at that in a negative way. I think, well, you cocky guys, you come back and you talk about what you have done. Notice the pronouns, what they had done and what they had taught. And I always, I always assign that a, a negative thinking. I, I noticed that they mentioned their works first and then their, their words. And it sounds to me always as if in their minds they're kind of saying, look at, look at us. Look what we did. Jesus, look at us. We, we really did some good stuff here. In reality, if that's the case, they needed to recognize that they only did what they did because of the Spirit's enabling power. Just as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he said, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And I've oftentimes looked at this passage and thought they were wrong on that. But I I don't know if I'm right there. You don't have to think of their report negatively. One person that I I consulted in studying this, his, his take on this verse is just the opposite. He sees the apostles bringing their ministries and efforts to Jesus as all of us ought to do today. And saying, here's what I've done, Lord, am I doing right? Here's, here's what I'm trying to do for you. Is this correct? How should I proceed? That's the way he sees what they're saying here. He kind of saw it as an extension of Saul's prayer on the Damascus Road when he fell before the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And so I don't know. I don't know if they were a little bit messed up in their mind as they came back or whether or not they were just doing the right thing and reporting back. But the significant event is they'd gone, they'd come back, and they were reporting to Jesus what had taken place here. The second significant thing then takes place, and that is that Jesus called the disciples to take some time apart from others and rest. They had listened. They had gone as he instructed. They had labored for the Master, and now they needed to spend some time alone with him. And so Jesus told them to come aside by themselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Now, as we think about those two events, the disciples being sent and then returning, and the subsequent command that Jesus gave them to come apart now and rest for a while, I think we see a pattern. And I think we could call that pattern the rhythm of the Christian life. We come out from the presence of men into the presence of God. And then we go out from the presence of God into the presence of men. It's a rhythm that I think we see repeated throughout the life of a believer, or at least we should. So let's think about those two things just for a few moments this morning. The Christian life 
involves the constant coming out from the presence of men into the presence of God. The disciples had accomplished so much for Jesus. They had been busy in obedience and in preaching and in teaching. And all of that is wearying work. And so Jesus here emphasized that they needed to come come and have a time of rest. And I think in that emphasis we see that we all who serve the Savior need to listen to it to that advice. We all need to come apart and rest for a while. Vance Havner used to say, if you don't come apart and rest, you will simply come apart. And it is true. Now, Jesus was not prescribing leisure here. That's, that's not what this is about. He was not talking about, let's go, go and take a vacation now. He was prescribing alone time with him. And it's not the first time that we see in the Gospel of Mark that kind of a prescription. Mark stressed the importance of it back in Mark chapter 4 and verse 34. He said, without a parable, he, Jesus, did not speak to them. When they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. That's what he's talking about. This coming apart to rest, this getting alone with God, was something that Jesus not only stressed here in teaching, but also modeled in his life. He regularly spent time alone with his Father. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, In the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. So we all need to come apart and rest. We all need alone time with God. If you think about the story of Elijah in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 19, if you, if you want to read that sometime on your own, you remember what happens when a person doesn't get apart and rest. Elijah, of course, you will recall the story. He had, uh, he had gone up on uh, Mount Carmel and defeated the prophets of Baal, 400 of them. It was an amazing victory, victory and God actually answered his prayer by sending fire from heaven. It was, it was one of the most amazing miracles you see in the Old Testament. But after this took place, we look at 1 Kings 19 and verse 4, and we see what happens next. But he, Elijah himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Elijah had fought for God. Elijah had stood and preached against the false prophets of Baal. Elijah had seen the astonishing miracle, which none of us have ever seen, I don't think, of God answering by fire from heaven. And yet in that passage we just read, we see him subsequently depressed. And even suicidal. And what was the solution? Alone time with God. Rest and alone time with God is what cured him of that problem. You see, we need the power of God in our lives if we're going to effectively serve him. Without the power of God, we can but fail. No greater example of that can we find than the, than the Old Testament uh, character Samson. One of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. Samson, when he had the power of God in his life, was just as, as he was invincible when he didn't. He, did, he wasn't. Let me read you some examples. Judges chapter 14, Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he was invincible. 
So they spoke to him, Judges 15, saying, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, he was invincible. And then look, Judges chapter 16, she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And so he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, he was invincible. But when he allowed the Spirit of the Lord to depart from him, he became as weak as a little girl. You see, we need the power of God in our lives if we're going to serve him. And the power of God comes from our alone times with him. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. We all ought to circle that in our Bibles. Without me, you can do nothing. And so all of us need to come apart and rest for a while. We need to come out from the presence of God or come out from the presence of men into the presence of God. And we need to do it regularly. And we need to do it repeatedly. We need to get alone with God in His Word. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. We need to get alone with God on our knees. When Jacob had made an enemy of his brother Esau, and Esau was coming to kill him, he uh, suddenly found alone time with God. To be the solution. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. He found power alone on his knees. One man said, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. So come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Now, there's another thing that needs to be said about this particular instruction, and that is this. It's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. You know, there are some passages of Scripture that don't apply to everybody. We know that, right? There's all kinds of passages of Scripture that talk about the glories of heaven and the eternal life that awaits. Well, those passages are only for believers. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, they mean nothing to you. You're not ever going to see that unless you trust Christ as your Savior. There's many things like that in Scripture that are for just a certain group of people. And that would be the case here as well. This passage is for Christians, but it's not for all Christians. It's only for the workers. It's for those who labor. It's for those who labor for the master. It is not an excuse for those who do little or nothing to do even less by citing it as their example. Let me read some words from J.C. Ryle, who sums this up very, very well. Here's what he says about it. He said, these words are full of tender consideration. Our Lord knows well that his servants are flesh as well as spirit, that they have bodies as well as souls. He knows that at best they have a treasure in earthen vessels and are themselves subject to many weaknesses. He shows them that he does not expect from them more than their bodily strength can do. He asks for what we can do and not for what we cannot do. Come to a quiet place, he says. Get some rest. These words are full of deep wisdom. Our, our Lord knows well that his servants must attend to their own souls as well as the souls of others. 
He knows that a constant attention to public work is apt to make us forget our own private soul business and that while we are taking care of the vineyards of others, we are in danger of neglecting our own. Song of Solomon's 1.6. He reminds us that it is good for ministers to withdraw occasionally from public work and look within, come to a quiet place, he says. Ah, but sadly, there are few in the church of Christ who need these admonitions. There are but few in danger of overworking themselves and injuring their own bodies and souls by excessive attention to others. The vast majority of professing Christians are indolent and slothful and do nothing for the world around them. There are few comparatively who need the bridle nearly so much as the spur. Yet these few ought to take to heart the lessons of this passage. They should husband their health as a talent and not squander it like gamblers. They should be content with spending their daily income of strength should not draw recklessly on their capital. They should remember that to do a little and do it well is often the way to do the most in the long run. And above all, they should never forget to watch their own hearts jealously and to make time for regular self-examination and calm meditation. The prosperity of their ministry and public work is ultimately bound up with the prosperity of their own soul. That occasional retirement is one of the most useful practices. So the first thing we see in the rhythm of the Christian life is the Christian life involves the constant coming out from the presence of men into the presence of God. Secondly, the Christian life involves the constant going out from the presence of God into the presence of men. What's the purpose of all that? What's the purpose of our coming out from the presence of men in the presence of God? Why would we do that? Why do we need this alone time with God? Well, we said and hammered a minute ago that it's, a, it's, it's about having success in our service, of having the power of God in our lives. And, and I would say that implied in that reasoning is that we get away from men and we get alone with God so that we can get back out among men and serve him more effectively, effectively there. It is a cycle. It is a rhythm. The rhythm of the Christian life. We come out from the presence of men into the presence of God to get our batteries recharged so that we can then go out from the presence of God back into the presence of men and serve with power. And then we repeat. Just like the shampoo bottle, we repeat. Oh, listen, brothers and sisters, devotion for the sake of devotion is just selfishness. I remember my father when I was uh, younger, living at home as a child. I remember one night I was awakened from a sound sleep by all kinds of commotion in the house. And my father was having an asthma attack. Only time I remember this happening. Very traumatic experience because they were rushing about and he was gasping and carrying on. And, and they were trying to figure out how to get him to the hospital. And they eventually rushed him off to the hospital. And here I am. You know, that's just, this was a big deal for a little guy. I thought, what's going on? And he came back home afterwards. So they treated him. He was fine. Greatly improved. And I remember asking him shortly thereafter, Dad, what, what happened? What was wrong? And, and he said something I've never forgot. He said, I could breathe in just fine, but I couldn't breathe out. And I thought, how true that is of so many Christians. We can breathe in just fine, but we're not breathing out. And we must never forget that the power of God that comes upon us in our alone time is not just for our own personal use. It's that we might share with others. Sean Connery played King Arthur in a movie called First Night. And he said something in there which I think is excellent theology, believe it or not, from Sean Connery. He said, God makes us strong for a while so that we can help each other. And I believe that's true. That's the whole reason that we get alone 
with God. Paul reminded the Philippians, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And so come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. It's a means to an end, not just an end in and of itself. Come into the presence of God. And then, go into all the world. That's the formula that we see in Scripture. That's why Jesus would come and speak to them and say, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He said, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And so the rhythm of the Christian life involves the constant coming out from the presence of men into the presence of God. And also the constant going out from the presence of God into the presence of men. Christian, don't neglect the quiet time. Don't neglect the alone time. Satan will fight you. Come apart anyway. Come apart and rest a while. Other things will seem more important sometimes. Come apart anyway. Eventually, if you're like most Christians, your deserted place, that quiet place, will become your favorite place. The rhythm of the Christian life involves the constant coming out from the presence of men into the presence of God and the constant going out from the presence of God into the presence of men. So charge your batteries, but do it for a purpose. Charge your batteries, Christian, so that you can share all the wonderful things God shows you in your desert place with the rest of us and with the world. He said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest.